We are honestly, we're in a period where, you know, people are getting sloppy with back channels. You know, I'm sure we've all seen it based on the phone calls that, that we get or emails that get, we get from people we don't even know asking about somebody, you know, and it's it text, whatever, you know, LinkedIn messages, all that. I just, the, the biggest, some of the biggest things I tell entrepreneurs is don't cold call into current employers, only reach out to people that you know, well, that are going to, you know, probably give you good information. Don't be out there carpet bombing someone's network to try to get 15 or 20 or 30 references. It's just, you know, it's just poor form. And, you know, it puts the candidate in an awkward position, makes you look unprofessional, potentially poisons the whole recruiting process. Honestly, even before you get to outreach, I talk a lot to our entrepreneurs about being precise. Like, what is your referencing strategy? Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the HR Heretics podcast, where we get into the real talk of company construction. These are the conversations that happen between founders, chief people officers, and board members behind closed doors. We're heretics in this industry because there's a culture of silence around important business topics, especially as it relates to people. But on the show, we tell the truth and expect the same from our guests. Today, our episode is with Matt Oberhart, partner at Andreessen Horowitz. I've known Matt since 2014. When I started at GitHub, you know, as GitHub was backed by A16Z and Matt was a talent partner and we were hanging out all the time. He's just a great guy. He loves Pearl Jam and he's super talented at what he does. I met Matt in <laughs> 2019, I think, 2018, mm -hmm. maybe, right after Carta raised their Series E, which was led by Andreessen. And we were running a go to market search and I was just astonished with how much he knew about the lay of the land for executive search, how to mm -hmm. think about executive search, how to think about go to market, what candidates were available on the market. I just think Matt is like one of the best search partners I've ever worked with. Yeah. He is so strategic and calm. He's kind of like the Yoda who's seen it all and is extremely humble at the same time. And on the show, I love how he talked about not just the search aspect, but how people grow and change over the years, you know, with all his years in, in the industry and especially at A16Z and seeing talent, just seeing how references shift, people change. And that's why he's so big on these talent networks, right? It's not just the search. It's this never ending, ever evolving process of cultivating communities of people. Yeah. I think our audience is going to love this episode because Search partners are a little opaque and Matt breaks that down for us. Maybe my favorite part about the episode was like how to tell a founder when they're about to make a mistake or a bad hire. For sure. So I'm, I'm super excited about this episode. I think our audience is going to love this episode. Uh, please like, subscribe, share. It helps our channel. It helps us reach a, a new audience. And without further ado, here's Matt. Matt, thanks so much for joining us on HR Heretics. How are you today? Doing really well. Appreciate both of you uh, inviting me to join you. So happy you're here, Matt. So Matt, you and I worked together a little bit when I was at Carta. Uh, you were kind of like the shoulder I would go and cry on anytime I would have some sort of executive level problem or executive recruiting problem. And I, I guess just kind of like starting with where the world is today, Talk to us a little bit about Ventures Lens on talent and how does how does like a venture talent partner assess talent? Yeah. So I think, you know, it also it sort of all starts with what your mission and kind of what your role is. And I think, you know, the way that we're structured over here is is somewhat different and unique relative to a lot of the other, you know, venture talent partners that are out there. And I talk to a lot when I meet executives for the first time, I often talk to them about this. I'm like, hey, think of me almost as you want a talent agent rather than a recruiter. Uh, so I think, you know, our lens, at least on talent sort of starts with that differentiator, you know, so when we're meeting, um, executives or we're helping companies, we're coming at it from the lens of honestly, not being recruiters. We're coming at it from the lens of being advisors. We're coming at it from the lens of being counselors. So I think that makes a huge difference in terms of what our lens looks like. I think, you know, when we're meeting executives, the difference is we're focusing a lot more on their intangibles. Um, and their soft skills in addition to their functional capabilities, because we're not really meeting executives and evaluating them for a specific role. We're meeting them to kind of bring them into our network and be there as a resource to help them, um, you know, further their careers. We're not necessarily interviewing them for a specific role in the portfolio. So when we're talking to executives and evaluating them, it's a lot about EQ. 
Like, for example, how do you take feedback? You know, what are the things that you're aware of that might be your personal triggers? You know, what do you see as your interpersonal impact in a room? You know, what sort of balance they have between humility and, you know, self-confidence, a lot of those things. We're also looking at motivations, intrinsic motivations, extrinsic motivations. We're doing a lot on critical thinking, like looking at their analytical skills, their business acumen skills. We spend time looking at their org savvy, their leadership skills, all these things that aren't necessarily role specific, but are going to be a lot more relative to who they are as an executive. And I think then that also plays in, you know, look, I've worked with both of you when you were in the portfolio and, you know, the conversations that we had were always a bit more kind of strategic around how to approach the role. How can we help the team get calibrated on the role? Who are the best search partners to use? And let, then sort of letting you and that search firm run with the execution. And we remained in that advisory capacity, kind of being there to help you with, you know, with referencing, compensation guidance, our views of people that are in process that we know, that type of thing. So I think, you know, our lens on talent is going to be a little bit different because the role as the, of the talent partner is defined here very differently. Matt, what percentage of time are you spending on external kind of succession planning, meeting new executives versus advising portfolios inside? people inside the portfolio and how do you balance that it's a great question i think probably on average um over sort of the long lens at least it's probably about 40 percent with the portfolio about 40 percent with the executive community and then about 20 percent on the work with the veterans community which you know we can get into later but so if you sort of look at portfolio versus external in total it's probably about 40 60 honestly uh but you know as both of you know in a given week it might be 80 20 and then it might be 10 90 the following it just So I think a lot of it for us, at least, is, you know, we measure a lot, I'll put it to you that way, in terms of, um, you know, tracking how we're spending our time. And it's not, it's not like we're lawyers billing out hours. That's not it. It's more, where are we putting our energy? Are we putting our energy into, you know, meeting new executives? Are we putting our energy into sustaining those relationships by being there to offer counsel or introductions? Are we putting our energy into, you know, being on search firm update calls? So we have a lot of different metrics that we, you know, track internally so that we can kind of make sure what we're keeping a good balance and that there are certain parts of the work that we do that aren't forgotten or left behind, you know, in the heat of the moment. That's really interesting. How is your success measured? Yeah. So, you know, to get into some of the details on that. So, you know, we have all of us sort of we, we have, you know, metrics that kind of roll up as a team. But, you know, within that set of metrics, we have, you know, a fair amount of flexibility and latitude is kind of where we choose to spend our time. So, for example, you know, when I first started here back in, you know, 2012, there was a ton of energy being put towards building a network of executive relationships that uh, is now somewhat more about sustaining those relationships. So the activity and cadence around that sustaining is very different than it is when you're building. Um, you know, we're also, you know, measuring the activity with that network in terms of, Hey, how many new execs have you interacted with this year? Uh, what have you been able to do for the executive community in terms of the number of councils you've provided, the number of introductions you've provided? Hey, how many, you know, search programs have you worked on with the portfolio? Um, you know, what's the value you've been able to add there in terms of, Hey, you know, on the search update calls, helping them with mocks beforehand, how many subject matter experts beforehand were you able to introduce? All these different things that just help us really figure out what works and what doesn't work with the portfolio and the executive community, but also as a way to track the amount of energy that we're generating, um, you know, in terms of our daily work and making sure that, you know, we're getting done what we need to get done. Yeah. You mentioned Mock and Jeff Stump is is one of the people that I worked closely with when I was at Andreessen. And the Mock is something I was not aware of before I worked with you all. And it completely blew my mind. I think it's the best framework for executive hiring that I've seen. Can you just describe the mock to our audience, what it is and why you guys are so passionate about using it? Well, I think, look, all of us have you know been doing this for a long time. And I think what tends to happen sometimes with, you know, position profiles is a couple of things. One is they generally tend to kind of be recitations of all the possible responsibilities that could be encompassed in a role. And, you know, there's never really any prioritization put against, well, okay, fine. This, you have this huge long list. What are the things that you actually really think the person should focus on? And let's take a subset. Let's take that subset and really start to figure out how do we interview against those really important items 
to make sure that these people have the competencies and experiences to do them. So I think that's sort of the first thing that you see with a lot of position descriptions. I think the second thing you see a lot of times as well is it's a rushed process. And I think a lot of times with entrepreneurs, they always, you know, whenever you start working on something, you automatically feel like you're three or four months behind. So what we really tried to do with the mock, it stands for mission outcome competency. What we really tried to do with it was number one, impress upon the entrepreneur that let's try to get in front of a need as far as possible. So we have the time to really sit down with you and figure out what's the mission for the role, what are the outcomes you want to achieve with the role, and what are the competencies that um, will determine whether a person can achieve those outcomes. And I'll kind of break this out bit by bit here. So the mission really is, it's the elevator pitch. It's the one or two lines that dictate exactly what you want this person to really deliver at a high level. What is the mission of the role? The outcomes are basically six or eight things that you want them to achieve in the course of probably the first 12 or 18 months in the job. And then the competencies are related to what, what are the things this person needs to have accomplished? What are the skills that they need to have that we have evidence, therefore, they can actually achieve those outcomes? Now, the thing that you see that's missing from this is a recitation of responsibilities in the job and largely kind of a recitation of the type of experience a person has in the role. And we, you know, it's a deliberate distinction because we have found that, you know, unless you really lay out what almost amounts to that person's performance review in reverse, which is the outcomes, it doesn't really matter what you list as the day-to-day responsibilities. Because when you do that massive recitation of day-to-day responsibilities, it doesn't come with any prioritization. And then, you know, what happens so often is a person gets hired off of that list of responsibilities. Their onboarding is pretty limited because in a startup, you know, it's hard to, you know, just to get time to talk through these things. So a person might be in the job 30, 60, 90 days before they have any sense from the CEO or founder they're working for what the actual priorities are that you want me to get done out of this long list of responsibilities. If you lay out through the mock process what the outcomes are going to be, you interview against those outcomes to drive the competencies. Even if there's some limited comms during the onboarding process during the person's first quarter on the job, they still know from the position description what the heck the outcomes are that they're supposed to be working towards. So kind of a long way to answer your question, Nolan, but that's sort of a lot of the reason why we started doing this. That, that makes a, a ton of sense, Matt. And we know with the, the chief people officer role, CHRO, we know with that role specifically, unlike maybe finance or sales, that entrepreneurs have, have a harder time understanding what that role is, right? Many founders I've worked with are like, well, that's why you're here. Tell me what the priorities are. And so that framework kind of helps think that through before you start talking to folks, which I think is very smart. Well, I think, you know, it almost feels a lot like tree rings in some ways. You know, the product and end stuff is what they always know the best. And then sort of that next ring out is a lot of go to market. They have some knowledge of that, but, you know, it's more limited. But when you get out to that last ring, which is the operation stuff, which might be finance, legal, the HR function, manufacturing and supply chain, when you're talking about companies that have physical pride, I mean, that's the area where often they're most limited. And, you know, what we often try to do is like say, hey, let's let's put a first draft of the mock together. And that's where the subject matter piece comes into play because we've got this network of executives and let's say it's a CFO search. You know, I'll spend time, you know, telling an entrepreneur, okay, there are three or four or five stage and market appropriate CFOs. I'd love to have you talk to for the CFO search. So you can take that draft mock that we started and let's stress test your thinking on, you know, what you have in there with people who are real life in the job. And then let's also then have you go and calibrate, you know, against that, especially on the personality part of it, because for the most part, they probably haven't spent a lot of time with CFOs over the course of their career. So those subject matter expertise conversations are really helpful to flesh the mock out further, but also to start to give the entrepreneurs a sense of what does the personality profile for this pool of talent look like and start to get them to think more about who am I going to click with best from a chemistry and fit perspective? Because there's always going to be a lot of people out there who could do the job. Let's go ahead and figure out who's going to be able to do the job with you. It's so funny because you've sent a bunch of those entrepreneurs to me over the years, which I've loved those conversations. Um, and we we worked together when I back started GitHub in 2014. And you just, you learn so much over the years. And one of my biggest advice, you know, to those folks is like, look, uh, presumably we all have the technical and functional skill set for this job. Like that's not really what you're you're interviewing for, right? Or unpacking. It's the personality of that person, the disposition, the fit, what they value, you know? And I kind of use like, we're all 
crayons in a crayon box, but we're all different colors, right? And you have to pick the right the right one for you, which is usually the kicker and the most important thing. I totally agree with that, Kelly. And and how do you actually assess for fit, Matt? Because I love the the mock process of like, what outcomes do we want? What competencies do this? But fit, you know, I don't think entrepreneurs really spend a lot of time thinking about. It's more of a feeling that they have. Yeah. And when you're in the executive recruiting process, like feeling is not scientific. <laughs> it's not strategic. It's like, yeah. oh, I have a good vibe. And it turns out most execs are great talkers. So how do you assess for yeah. fit? And l- let me tack on, how do you help yeah. CHROs assess for fit, Matt? Because I'll be honest, I didn't do that as well as I should have 10 years ago, right? You learn, but how do you coach the other side to also assess yeah. that side, which I didn't do very well all the time? I mean, look, I think the answers here are kind of one and the same, to be honest. Um, I think it starts a lot with stepping out of a typical interview process. Because I think, look, we've all been doing this long enough. We all can tell when someone's on their best behavior. And, you know, people always, you know, if it's a regular interview, shoes are polished, spit shined, and, you know, everyone's really just on their A game. You have to test people by putting them in real world working situations. And, you know, you can do that in a number of ways. And we talk to our entrepreneurs about, like, go through a whiteboard session with an executive in an interview. Let's actually take like a real world business situation you're grappling with as a founder and let's brainstorm it together. And people just naturally, without even realizing it, start letting their guard down and start behaving like they truly are when you get into that actual like pretend work session. Uh, We also always advocate towards an end of a process, get the whole executive team together. And, you know, you may give a candidate a topic And if you give them a topic that's related to your business, you know, you got to give them the data room to back it up uh, so that they can actually put a real presentation together on how they would have addressed the specific issue from a business standpoint that you're talking about. Or maybe they come in when there's no data room, they come in and do kind of 120 or 180 day game planning session on, hey, here's everything I've learned during my interview process. Here's how I'm going to approach building out the finance function or the legal function or the sales function, whatever it is. And you have this working session as a team, which basically allows you as the entrepreneur not only to be assessing the fit between you and the candidate, but you can see how that candidate fits into the room. You can see how that candidate fits into the executive team. And then you follow that up. Maybe that goes for like 90 minutes. And then, you know, you all go out to dinner as a team and you just continue to see how that social dynamic develops. I'd say the other thing too, uh, which often, you know, doesn't get as much emphasis in the referencing process is really this question of fit. I mean, a lot of times during referencing, we want to know what did the candidate do. We need to confirm or dispute things they've said they've done, assertions they've made about their success at a company. But sometimes, you know, there's not enough time spent on what did, what was it like to work with that individual? And I think that's the second part of it. It's it's your own real world experience during an interview process with the, the working session. But then it's also, let me go test out, you know, how well they worked with everybody else, you know, in prior roles. Yep. And then I also think with references, I find you know, founders are typically showing up with like their typical like five to seven reference questions. I find actually like running through a process, getting some data on people, and then actually using that data to inform the reference questions specifically in the areas in which we currently have flags gives me better signal. What what are the tips that you have for reference processing, both on the front door and the back channel references? Yeah, you know, I think you brought up a really good point there. Referencing should be, it's, it, it, it should be almost like a continual loop. You know, you're interviewing, then you're referencing. You're interviewing, then you're referencing. I mean, referencing should be happening throughout a process. And I think by the time, you know, you're done with an interview process, you probably should end up with, you know, maybe it's 50 to 75% of the references are probably kind of front sheet stuff. And then another 25 to 50 are the back channel. And a lot of the back channel is going to be happening kind of in those early stages where you're interviewing someone, collecting some data, and you're like, hey, I need to go confirm this. Let me go figure out, you know, out in the market who I may know that could help me with this. And I think, you know, we are honestly, we're in a period where, you know, people are getting sloppy with back channels. Um, you know, I'm sure we've all seen it based on the phone calls that that we get or emails that get we get from people we don't even know asking about somebody, you know, and it's it text, whatever, you know. LinkedIn messages, all that. I just, the, the biggest, some of the biggest things I tell our entrepreneurs is like cold, don't cold call into current employers. Um, you know, only reach out to people that you know well 
that are going to, you know, probably give you good information. Don't be out there carpet bombing someone's network to try to get 15 or 20 or 30 references. It's just, you know, it's just poor form. And, you know, it puts the candidate in an awkward position, makes you look unprofessional, potentially poisons the whole recruiting process, honestly. Um, And even before you get to outreach, I talk a lot to our entrepreneurs about being precise. Like, what is your referencing strategy, first of all, first and foremost? Like, and to your point earlier, Nolan, like, what are we trying to learn? And what we're trying to learn will evolve during uh, a recruiting process. But let's figure out what we need to learn at each point. And then who are the best people to contact to find out that information? And be targeted and selective as a result of that and only be reaching out to people that, that you do know. I think the other thing that's important, too, is if you're going to be doing the back channel stuff, there's a strategy where you can simply just tell a candidate, hey, I may get referred to other people that, you know, I may want to call as a reference. And is it okay if I do that without you knowing? And just sort of like in the course of just talking to them as a candidate, say that to them. And that way, you know, nothing's a surprise. Nothing's a problem, you know, later on. And they can identify if there are issues that you would not otherwise know of before you go and reach out to somebody. It's just such a human thing to do that people just skip the step on and they want to just kind of like have all these like back alley conversations, which I've never really understood as opposed to just like, hey, this is a part of our process. We do back channels. I just want to let you know and give you the opportunity to let me know if there's any flags that you want to tell me about right now. Well, and you, you may find this funny, but like in the end, it's about building a relationship with somebody you know, you're going to work with them. And the, the funny part of it is like, if this were someone, let's say you were going to try to go date romantically, you wouldn't be calling all of their friends who you've never met to ask about them. So like, you know, there's, 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 there's a certain way to do this, which is constructive that actually adds to the process rather than causes friction and problems. Yeah. And, and using back channels wisely, right. To the dating, like if, if you back channel with, with someone that, that broke up with them, like, you know, ha- have the wherewithal to know they're probably not going to say all great, wonderful things and have the maturity to filter and understand that back channels are back channels. And you have to kind of vet that out because a lot of people were text one person could be biased. Boom. You know, and, and it's just not complete. Hey, everyone, we'll be right back in a moment after a word from our sponsors. Hey, everybody, your co-host Nolan here. High performance and great culture should never be at odds. They're better together. With Lattice People Management Platform, companies efficiently run people programs that create enviable cultures where employees want to do their best work. Serving thousands of customers of all sizes globally, Lattice helps everyone work better together. Learn why companies from Slack to the LA Dodgers choose Lattice. Visit Lattice.com slash HR Heretics today. That's Lattice, L-A-T-T-I-C-E dot com. Have you ever had a negative experience hiring an executive? I certainly did at Carta and DoorDash, and that's why I started Continuum, the modern AI-powered executive search firm. Continuum connects executives and senior operators to venture-backed tech companies for fractional and full-time roles. You could post any executive-level role to Continuum's marketplace and search through our database of world-class experience leaders. Continuum will intelligently surface your opportunity to relevant operators. They'll express interest and show up in your inbox. It's like magic. There's no platform fee or hidden cost. You only pay the person you hire and you can cancel at any time. If you're thinking about hiring an exec in the middle of a search right now or don't know how to solve a problem, I get it. Scaling is hard. Companies like Athletic Greens, Weights and Biases, Masari, and more than a hundred other tech companies have turned to Continuum for help solving their people ops, go-to-market, engineering, and finance challenges. So check out Continuum in the description below Ping me on LinkedIn if you have any questions or head to joincontinuum.com. I want your take on this, Matt, because like people do well in some situations and not well in others. I I worked with Tony at DoorDash and he used to say the Michael Jordan of executive recruiting gets it right two out of three times. He's had incredible stability amongst his leadership team, but that's not always the case. And sometimes it's it's situational. Uh, context. Sometimes it's business context. Sometimes it's my manager context and it doesn't work. How do you guys think about negative references? And like when it comes up, you know, as it relates to the specific new role, how do you advise founders on that? So look, I mean, I, I think eventually if you call enough people, you will get a negative reference on somebody. 
that that's, that's largely unavoidable. And that's where, what I said earlier, like you're not, don't call 15, 20, 30 people. Now you get a negative reference. Um, I think you kind of have to evaluate as you were saying, is it a state of the situation or is it a trait of the individual? And, you know, that's really, I think what it comes down to in the end, because if, if you're looking at someone and it was a, you know, bad fit or they didn't perform well, or maybe they performed great, but the company didn't execute, like they were a great CFO, but product and sales could never get their act together. I mean, you can go through a long list of reasons why somebody may have done well in a job, but it didn't work out for them. Um, and some of that's going to be, you know, functional delivery. Some of that might be cultural fit. There's a whole different set of reasons, but you have to evaluate like, Hey, is this simply a result of the situation, the state they were in at the time, or if we connect two or three of these together, okay, well, hang on a second. Then I'm starting to see things that may be more of a trait we have to pay attention to. But, you know, it's it's rare in life for everything to come up roses on referencing or everything to be a, you know, a crown of thorns. It's always going to be middle ground stuff. And you know, it's one thing we spend time with our entrepreneurs to help them go, okay, you're, you're never going to hire someone who is, you know, 100th percentile on everything they are going to have weaknesses and let's look at those weaknesses. And like I said, figure out were they a result of the situation they were in, or is it a trait that they have? If the weakness is a result of the situation, let's parse out whether that's relevant to your company right now. Are they going to experience those same things that cause them potentially to have failures? If it's a trait, okay, let's look at the rest of your team. Is this a trait that you could afford to take on that you could potentially have as a development area for this individual, or is that trait that they're weak in so mission critical to the role that it just isn't possible for them to, you know, successfully execute in your company. So it's a lot of nuance and, and Nolan, that's, I think what you were getting at. It's just a, a ton of nuance in the end and rarely are these things black and white. I, I also think the, the best candidates, at least I've talked to and including myself is to have the EQ to actually talk through that before you hear it from a reference. Right. I think that that's that's a big sign as well as as that self-awareness, that reflection to talk through that during the interview process. Exactly. And I think also when you're talking about talking through, I think it's really, you know, it's a great point. You know, founders sometimes feel like, oh, God, you know, can I actually bring up something to a candidate that I learned in referencing? Absolutely. I mean, have a conversation with them to get the added context on exactly, you know, what may have happened in that situation, because you may it may give you an additional set of data that helps you make a more informed decision about what to do with that referencing information. I always, I totally agree. I also really believe that people grow and people change. And the more experiences that you have, the more weathered you get, the better off that you will ultimately be. I mean, I look back and I'm candidly embarrassed about the person that I was 10 years ago. And I think like that's kind of my general that's how I know I'm doing okay. Is like every every 10 years I look back and if I was embarrassed, that means I'm growing really fast. Yeah. I think like that's when people talk about the negative aspects of their career, that's how you can begin to assess if they actually have been growing versus if they're putting some veneer bullshit totally. on it. You could pretty yeah. pretty easy suss that out. For sure. A absolutely. How do you and, guys you think know, about that? How do you, how do you yeah. guys think about that though on the Andreessen side? Like when you're like, you know, cause you're going to have data, you guys have, I'm assuming so much data on people and then like, you know, but as they move through their career, if they grow and change, how do you guys think about that? Yeah. And that's why I think it's really important to re-engage with executives. Like it's, it's something I was talking about earlier in the discussion where it's like, Hey, I spent a lot of time in my early years here building a network of executive relationships. And a lot of what I'm doing now is sustaining those relationships and continuing to find ways to, you know, add value for those executives. But in the course of those conversations, you know, you're getting an update on them and you're getting an update on their lives, what they've accomplished, you know, and where they've gone. And I think that's really an important part of this. You know, these are not snapshots in time. Um, everyone is on a continuum of, of personal and professional growth. And that's why I always think it's dangerous to, you know, we talk about this with our entrepreneurs is like, hey, I know, you know, three people that worked with them 10 years ago. It's like, that's really not going to be relevant data. Um, you know, you may see some things in their past that come up at that point that maybe continue in the future or things that they, they grew out of. And, you know, it's really for me, like what, what have the last five to seven years been like in somebody's career? And let's really hone in on that when we're really trying to figure out who they are and, and 
you know, what they're going to be able to do for you right now, because anything that's earlier than that in, in often cases is, is just, it's too dated. It's really just old information. Matt, in your, in your role, the talent partner role, it's a, it's a slippery slope sometimes in supporting these entrepreneurs, you know, and also helping them see maybe what they can't see for themselves. Would love any, any spicy stories, anything you recall on when you'd have to put your foot down and, and tell a, a founder they're wrong or they're making the wrong choice. And, and how do you choose those precious moments <laughs> to, to do that or not? Yeah, they're, they're, those are chips that you cannot push to the center of the table that often. Um, so I think it sort of starts with how we operate. I mean, we literally, like, we're not over the top with our founders. Our founders run their companies, okay? So, you know, it truly is an advisory role. So, you know, whatever you're trying to do is it's a lot of, I guess, leading by influence versus directive. And, you know, that is a very different... um you know, action when you're talking to an entrepreneur and you're not you're just like, no, I'm not going to do that. Well, it's like, okay, I can't overrule what you want to do. So when you're doing the influence thing, you know, you have to start, I think, with a with a foundation where the founder has to have valued your contribution up until this point. And the founder wants you involved. The founder has appreciated the advice that you provided to their business. And that founder trusts you. So it starts with that basis of trust to say, okay, I trust you and I look to you as a conciliary or advisor on things. If that hasn't been established, there's no way you're going to be able to have any impact on the decision, full stop. But I think once you have that trust established, you can then say, hey, here's why I think this is a mistake. And when you tell them, I think it's a mistake, it has to be grounded and backed up with data. You know, we're dealing with technical founders who are very data-oriented individuals. It can't be just this subjective, well, I think or I feel this way. Like, they're going to ask you, well, what's the data behind it? Why do you think that way? And you have to have that information. And look, um, the objective data points can come in all different flavors. You know, maybe it's referencing data. Maybe it is information you have because you've met the executive and have a, a deeper sense of who they are based on your own referencing independent and your own evaluation, independent of whatever may have happened during the process. Um, you may have company performance data. Let's say it's a sales executive and a sales exec is saying, hey, we hit this quota, et cetera, et cetera. Well, guess what? I actually know objectively whether that happened or not. You know, we can't ask for W2 data anymore like we used to in the past, but you know, it, it, there's still the ability to validate these things. So I think that's what it comes down to really in the end is the trust has to be established. And once they trust and value your role in the process, you then have to be able to provide them the objective data versus subjective feelings or thoughts. It reminds me of our episode with Steve Nolan Cadigan, where he said our products are judgment and credibility. Um, you know, those two things have to be there before utilizing those chips, Matt, for sure. But at the same time, many founders are in the role because they're headstrong, they have a belief, they trust their instincts and they follow it. And so what I'm hearing you say, Matt, is, you know, I, I, you have to very seldomly pull that card just in general and then back it up with data. But then at the end of the day, it still is the founder's decision. And I'm sure there's been times when you've actually been convicted that, hey, this person is making a mistake. Maybe it actually, they, but they went forward anyways. Maybe it actually was a mistake or maybe it wasn't. And people are tactile learners. Like they do have to learn by making their own mistakes too, right? Absolutely. And I think it also comes down to as well, like we naturally try to work with entrepreneurs back to that whole conversation we had at the beginning about how we view talent. And one of the things I mentioned at the time was EQ. And, you know, you have to have a group of individuals who you're advising that want your input. They are willing to show vulnerability and ask for help. They have the right blend of humility versus confidence, all those things so that they're actually open to getting the feedback in the first place and open to hearing differing and conflicting opinions, perhaps, on a decision that we're making. Because look, this goes beyond talent. They're, they're making business decisions every day. And they have to be of the mindset that I'm going to take in as much data as I, you know, as I should and can so that I have the most diverse set of information to work with to make a decision for my company. Whether it's whether we, you know, invest in product A over product B, whether I hire this CFO candidate or another one, 
they have to have a mindset that is already predisposed to wanting the help and wanting the input from multiple constituencies. Otherwise, they're, it's probably not going to work for them as an entrepreneur, honestly, because they're going to stub their toe a lot of times. And eventually that repeated repetitive toe stubbing is going to have a serious you know, impact on the business. And Matt, I'm assuming that's part of the, the your vetting process and in investing in entrepreneurs is that EQ side. Well, I mean, look, because we have a different model and I mean, look, we're, we have a whole operating team over here that spends a lot of time helping entrepreneurs, as both of you know, you know, learn the nuts and bolts of how do you hire talent, build teams, market the company, sell product, raise money, you know, all stuff that is entrepreneurs they haven't done before for the most part, but it's all stuff they need to learn how to do well to be successful. We want to work with entrepreneurs that are going to tap into that. Um, so, you know, naturally we're going to be predisposed to working with folks that are going to want to leverage all of those resources that are available to them to help them become a better CEO. Yep. Matt, you mentioned you have a lot of latitude in your role, which is great. Um, is there, it's also a lot of pressure, right? And then what you do, I know what you do. And is there any, any moments where like that latitude becomes a little less and you're feeling the pressure and what, what is that like in, in your role when those moments hit? Yeah, I mean, I think for for me, I mean, look, having worked in startups before, this is it's a it's a different feeling of of pressure than it is when you're in an operating role and literally you're looking at you know the bank account balance, going, hey, can we make payroll at the end of the month? You know, it's 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 a different feeling. Um, I think that the biggest thing from a pressure standpoint over here is just when you're in an advisory role. Again, you're you're operating by influence. You don't really have control over the situation. But yet your 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 own success, I think both personally, how I measure myself and also, you know, to a degree how we measure, you know, ourselves here at the firm too, is based on the success of these things. So you're basically measuring success against things that you don't have control over. And I think that's the essence of the difficulty of the advisor role. And when you feel pressure at times, you're like, hey, I think this is how this should go. This is what I would do if I were in your situation. But at the same time, I can't go make you do that. Um, and look, we take a lot of ownership in what we do working with the portfolio because we're really involved with, you know, all of you very closely on a day-to-day basis. And part of the reason we're able to do that is we have such a large team. We're able to be proactive. We're not just running around reactively putting out fires like, I mean, when I work on a project with the portfolio, I'm probably investing at least four, sometimes up more months upward, sometimes of a year on the whole process. So there's a tremendous sense of ownership that comes with that and a tremendous sense of responsibility and pressure it feels to make sure that's done right, even though I'm only in an advisory capacity. So that that's a big part of it for me, honestly, in terms of probably more self-induced pressure in some ways. Matt, I want to talk a bit about veteran hiring. Um, so... Two of my favorite people I've ever worked with, uh, shout out to Jeff and then also to Casey North at DoorDash, uh, we're ex-military. And, you know, you do a lot of work with transitioning veterans into startups. Talk to me a little bit about, like, why is this such a good fit from a skill set standpoint? Like, why is going from the military into startups, like, why does that work so often? Yeah. So I, I think it works... If, if you think about the military environment, especially folks who've been in the special operations community, um, they're used to dealing with very dynamic, chaotic, very resource-constrained environments where, you know, that is very analogous to what happens in the startup world. Obviously, the subject domain and the work environment are, of course, very different. But in the end, What a lot of these folks are very good at, especially from the Iraq, Afghanistan generation, is I'm going to take a disparate group of people. Some of them might be from my own unit. Some of them might be from the broader, um, you know, Department of Defense establishment, civilian and military side, some from the U.S. government, some probably from some non-government entities, wherever it is that I am currently deployed, maybe from the government there as well, some local tribes, whomever, probably some or most of whom don't even like each other. And I'm going to get that group of people together to accomplish a common mission and a common purpose. Now, how many times can you think of when you've been in a startup where you've had a similar situation where you got to get a bunch of people in a room, you got to maybe bang some heads to get them to work together well, but we have a problem we need to solve that's cross-functional in nature. Maybe our order to cash cycle isn't working or, we're, you know, our, our, our product's not working at all, you know, in whatever environment it's been deployed in, whatever. 
these people are used to dealing with that type of situation. Again, the subject matter is completely different. The, the process to get to the answer, though, is very, very similar. And when you combine that skill set with the leadership they bring to the table, I think that's why they're as successful as they usually are. I love that. The, uh, the, the two guys I was referring to are in operations roles and, and have ascended insanely fast. I see this, this issue, though, with founders, especially in today's job market, who are indexing on people that have done the job before. How do you how do you think about the experience versus trajectory conversation? Yeah, it's it's a great question because you're essentially betting in. I think the difference is you're having to buy into a different kind of potential. So, you know, the potential you're buying into is their ability to learn your product and learn your business, which is different than the potential you usually buy into where like someone is very good technically or they're very good go to market, they're very good at finance. And you're, near, you're merely betting on them to progress and ascend in both the scope and level of their responsibilities as a leader. So it's almost the exact inverse, where you're already bringing someone in who's very good on the leadership and the soft skill side, but now you need to bet on their ability to ramp on your business. So that's kind of how I usually frame it with entrepreneurs. Um, and I think the other challenge oftentimes is, especially for folks who've been enlisted, not officers, you have folks who, you know, may have spent their entire careers professionally since high school. You're talking, you know, 20, 25 years and they don't have a college degree or if they do have a college degree, it was something that was, you know, attained remotely while they were, you know, on active duty. These people are incredibly skilled, incredibly gifted individuals, but it's very difficult for recruiters to be able to map, you know, their skill set to what the open jobs may be in a company. And, you know, the translation guide doesn't exist anymore like it used to, because look, we have the smallest active duty military, you know, in our lifetimes easily. You know, once we got out, once we, you know, left the draft behind and we went to all volunteer armed forces, you know, most of society doesn't have regular contact with people who are in the military anymore. So they don't understand as easily what those folks can do as may have existed 30, 40, 70 years ago when you had a huge proportion of the population was veterans and it was hard, like you probably, everybody in their family had somebody who served. So that translation guide is gone. So it's a lot harder for folks to understand how the skill set translates. And what I often talk to vets about is like, honestly, don't go through normal recruiting processes because, you know, you're going to have people looking at your paper that just don't understand what you've done. You know, when, when you see a company that has a role that you're interested in, Make sure you already have built out the network that allows you to go talk to somebody outside of the recruiting process who can help you, who understands who you are. Maybe it's a former, you know, maybe it's someone who's a vet um, who already works at the company. You know, you've already established relationships. We talk to vets a lot about build your network first and then the job will follow from that. Because when you see something that looks of interest at a company, you can reach out to your contacts there and they can be advocates for you because you're going to be an out of the box hire. You're not going to be someone who checks everything that goes down the list for sure. So you've got to have people who are outside the process who are advocating for your candidacy. Matt, how do you all structure that? Is it more informal? Is it a, a more formal kind of widespread program for you all? How, how is that set up? Yeah. So, you know, we've worked with a number of organizations over the years. Um, you know, I've been on the board of Commit Foundation now for probably about seven or eight years. We do a workshop with them every year. Uh, we worked pretty closely in the past with Bethany Coates and what she was doing at Breakline. We have good relationships with Honor Foundation. Uh, we're investors in shift.org. So it kind of becomes a bit of a, a, a hybrid. Like, you know, we do these workshops um, where, you know, you have folks that are interested in technology and VC uh, who are coming in. And then we're also, you know, I take a lot of one-on-one -on -one intros as well, where, you know, veterans who I know that I've worked with who have transitioned like, hey, you know, there's this individual over here that you really should meet, I think would be, you know, a fantastic, you know, high potential person in the industry, that type of thing. So it's, it's a mix of both, honestly. I love that. Th those, yeah, those informal connections are super powerful. So I love that. Matt, just transitioning to a little bit about the moment that we're in today. Um, I still, I am of the belief that at least the beginning of 2024 is still going to be really tough on the venture back tech space. How are you advising founders on their talent strategy right now? And how are you thinking about 2024? Yeah, I mean, look, we're, we still got a lot of uncertainty out there. 
Um, and, you know, I think part of the advice depends on the stage of the company, to be perfectly honest. You know, when we're talking about the earlier stage companies, a lot of what they're working on is still those very focused, like our first engineering leader, our first product leader, our first go-to-market leader. And I think, you know, if you have your funding secured where for the next couple of years, you're going to be working on what you're working on, regardless of what those macro conditions look like, I think, you know, sort of moving ahead with building that core leadership team um, is really important. I think the challenge starts to come in on the growth and later stage side, because you've got a lot of companies that, you know, in some cases already expected to be public entities by now within the infusion of capital from that. Um, and others that are stacked up now waiting for that, you know, wave of companies to go out. So I think there it's, it's, you know, when you're looking at your hiring plan, it's really about, you know, we need to be focused on profitable growth. Um, it is not growth for the sake of growth anymore. You know, companies have to run much more lean and tighter than they have over the last 15 years. And it's a little bit of a back to the future feeling because we've kind of returned, I think, to a macro environment that reflects where we were, you know, in the 2000s and earlier. So, you know, I think the advice that we provide is somewhat dependent really on the stage of the company and, and where they are from a liquidity standpoint. Matt, we talked about this, I think, a couple months ago and we chatted on the phone, right, about the the market shifting especially with those later stage companies that were close to IPO kind of valuations changing, coupled with the, the, the struggle of hiring top-notch executives in this time, especially with that, that equity change. Have you seen any creative ways of reconciling that or thinking about that or anything companies are doing to still gr get great talent, even though this market has shifted. Yeah, I mean, I think you do at some point just have to recognize reality. And I think you and I may have talked about this a little bit at the time. And, you know, a lot of the the reset that has taken place has had to do with employee retention issues. Um, you know, a lot less to do without going out and raising new capital. So I think this, this idea of trying to retain your top employees and one of the main ways you have to do that is to kind of reset what their their the valuations look like. Um, and potentially then, you know, provide additional, um, equity to help true them up, I think is a really, you know, important thing to be considering right now, um, to be able to retain that top talent. If you do that, then there's a whole bunch of cascading effects that of course then make you more marketable to potential new employees. But I think the core of it starts with kind of just honestly ripping the bandaid off and going, Hey, you know, we, we, if the longer, the longer it takes for us to do this, the less competitive we probably become. Um, and we have to just recognize that and just bite the bullet. I talked to a founder a few weeks ago who had raised a really large round at a really high valuation that no longer makes sense in today's world. And that person's, they're now recruiting for C-level roles. And well, I asked him first, I was like, how are you talking to candidates about this? And he was like, well, how do you think I should? Because I have no idea. And my guidance to him was just be honest right? We raised in 2021. This was the market price. I know it's no longer the market price, but we don't need to go to market today for a new financing round. But my commitment is, is when we do, we will mark you to market at that new financing price and then re-up your equity. Do you think that that's good advice? And are you talking founders similarly? I mean, it's very situational. I mean, there are certain companies that let's say you have a very long runway of capital. Let's say you've got three, four, five, six years, even some of the companies I've talked to have had like six or seven years of runway. I think it's very dependent on that question. Damn. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, you know, how long do you have before you have to go reprice via an equity raise? And if you've got a long time, that's, oh, let's say, call it over 36 months, you know, I think that argument can work. Now, of course, the candidate has to buy into everything else. The candidate has got to buy into a whole bunch of aspects of things. So I, I think you've got to go ahead and have the executive buying into everything else, buying into the vision of the vision of the company, feeling a lot of passion for what that vision is, buying into who you are as a leader and your ability to execute on the vision. Everything else has to be rock solid because, you know, there's going to be a lot of other opportunities that are going to be out there during that time frame after which you hire this person that are going to be more financially attractive in probably in most cases. And the last thing you want to see is a candidate who you hire, who's constantly looking over their shoulder going, Hey, Oh, that looks interesting. Oh, that over there looks a lot, you know? 
so that's, you don't want to go, you know, win the battle that way, but then eventually lose the war because you brought this person in, but they weren't totally on board with everything. And therefore they're always going to be looking for the next best thing. Really well said. Yep, for sure. So Matt, I know we have a few minutes left yes. just to transition to our rapid fire <laughs> round uh, called Talent Rules. A couple quick questions for you. Who who has been your best hire in your career and why? So I think y'all appreciate this. There was a woman I hired in the third startup I worked for. Um, there's always that, you know, when you're still like under 50 people or even 100 people, there's always someone who's that operational glue. And it was a woman named Rochelle. Um, and I hired her, first hire when I joined the company. And she basically... Did all the QuickBooks work, was the office manager, handled all the HR paperwork, was the company confessional as to everything that went on. And we had a lot of drama. And I just feel like, you know, those people, like that one person basically did like five or six jobs. And I always find those people are incredibly short supply in startups. There's not a lot of them out there, but when you find one, they are a true gem and they can do so much to help the company. So probably not the answer you were expecting, but I can I can feel what you're explaining though. I love it. Can. Um and what what has been one of your most favorite interview questions over the years that has given you the biggest best signal on candidates? Um really good signal I get is I ask people what's the toughest piece of feedback they've received in the last 5 years and how did they respond? Um that's always one that I find gets at a lot of issues related to EQ, critical thinking, organizational savvy in a lot of cases too. Growth mindset. Yeah, that's that's also my favorite question, Matt. I feel like when you ask somebody about a tough piece of feedback, not only do you get like all the soft spots, you also get like, what tactically did somebody give them feedback on? Like, what did someone else think that their biggest area of growth is? Uh, and then were they able to learn from that and make it a strength? And then when someone also basically answers with that, you know, classic, looks like a backhanded compliment to themselves by the time they're done, you're like, okay, you, 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 you are no, no good to me. That just makes me throw up. Like I throw up in thinking about that. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. We, we've heard that on like multiple episodes. So I, like, when is that just going to die? Cause everyone knows, everyone knows now. And so to Nolan's point, <laughs> just be authentic. Yeah. There are slow learners out there. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. But it should be. It should be incredible self-awareness, authenticity, that, and, and to get that, that feedback on both sides. Yeah. But it's still out there. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Matt, this has been so good. Thank you so much for the time. Our audience is going to take away so much about exec recruiting from this episode. We can't thank you enough. 100%. Thanks, Matt. My pleasure. Appreciate you both inviting me on and uh, do it again anytime. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. HR Heretics is a podcast from Turpentine, the network behind Econ 102, Moment of Zen, and Turpentine VC. Subscribe, five stars, share it on Apple, YouTube, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcasts, all the things.